All right. Well, for the season of Lent, we've been studying the Lord's Prayer. If you didn't know, maybe if you're just joining us, welcome. And I couldn't think of a better season if something crazy is going to happen, like the coronavirus. Lent's the best season uh, for that to happen, and, and especially when we're studying on prayer. So um, this is great timing, if, if it could be good timing to have at all. Um, if you didn't get a chance to listen to the message we had last week on daily bread, I know it was probably one of the most timely, um, hits you right in the gut, um, encouragement and challenges that I've ever given. And I've heard, heard so many people uh, call or text or email just saying how helpful it was, especially in this time of wondering, is there going to be enough food or enough toilet paper or sanitizer? Or are we going to lose our jobs? Or what's the economy going to do? Um, if you um, feel yourself in that boat, um, I want to encourage you to, to check out that message we did last week on our podcast called Daily Bread. And I think it might help you. Today, we're going to look at the fourth petition in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or in Spanish, Perdona nuestras ofensas como también nosotros perdonamos a los que nos ofenden. In case um, you're joining us, the Lord's Prayer has these six movements or turns. The first is the Father's name. The second is the Father's kingdom. Third is our Father's provision. This week, our Father's forgiveness. Next week, our Father's leading. The week after that, our Father's deliverance. So we're diving into kind of each of the six sections of the Lord's Prayer, what it means to pray kind of that petition. Um, To do that, we've been reading the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6, but today we're going to do something different, and we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 6, because I think it really speaks to the nature of forgiveness very well. So if you have a Bible, or you want to open the Bible app, we're going to read from the classic text in Isaiah 6. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Pretty great text. The beginning of it says, In the year King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was a beloved king, a beloved ruler. People loved him. He was, generally speaking, a a good king, as good as kings can be. And so when you see this great um, revelation of 
the Lord being high and lifted up in the song that the angels are singing, it comes in the context of a national crisis. It comes in the context of a leader that they loved dying. It's in the context of mourning and grief and loss, bereavement and tragedy. And it was in that context that Isaiah lifted his eyes and he saw the king with his eyes. And we're kind of in a moment and maybe you're in that moment where you're in a, the king of the king as I has died, whatever that means for you. I want to encourage you, do like Isaiah did and lift your eyes up. You have a great opportunity to see the king and his robe filling the temple and get to experience his presence in a way that you might not get to when everything's kind of rosy. There's this phrase there, it says, the train of his robe filled the temple. I don't want to get into the, the history on that, which is actually pretty fascinating. But the big idea is there was no room for Isaiah to stand. The, the, the train of his robe, the, in, the end parts of his garments filled every nook and cranny of the temple. So I always imagine the temple and um, you don't want to step on the train of his robe. And so there's literally no place where you can stand in the, in the temple because his garments are taking up every square inch of that temple. It's kind of this symbolism of that he is victorious, he's conquered a lot of enemies, and that his, um, his garment of victory takes up all the square footage of, of the temple, and it, which is an invitation to us to decrease, to humble ourselves, to kind of get out of the way. Now, there's this response that Isaiah has, <coughs> which is pretty incredible. That's not a corona cough, by the way. Seasonal allergies. Lord of mercy, that's going to be trending. Um, is he says, woe is me. And I remember feeling this as a kid. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and we would often have these like long worship nights where it's just an hour and a half of worship. And I remember at some point in those worship services, there would always be a moment where I was deeply feeling the presence of God. And without anyone telling me, and without having any liturgy for this, I would instinctually feel like I needed to get on my knees and pray and confess the sin that I had and kind of do business with the Lord. And I remember as a teenager, just naturally experiencing when you're in God's presence, He wants to deal with your sin. And as I learned texts like this in Isaiah 6, and as you look at um, kind of great liturgies throughout the centuries, even if you look at the architecture of the temple in the Old Testament, it's kind of built on, um, as you get more intimate into the temple, the, the center is the Holy of Holies where the altar is, is there's always this moving forward to God wants to deal with the sin of his people. And Isaiah was not exempt from this. This is one reason why we do confession every Sunday. We get questions sometimes, why do we do that confessional prayer every Sunday? And I say Isaiah 6 is the reason why we do that. Because if the prophet Isaiah, who's generally speaking most people's favorite prophet, if he felt the need in God's presence to say, woe is me, then obviously, I mean, we all are in that boat. And so maybe next time we're together and we do this confession piece after worship, I encourage you not to go through the motions, but that it's a really important 
kind of formational liturgical element that we do as part of our worship. Then there's this element that the an angel comes to the altar and takes uh, a coal and he touches his lips and he pronounces that uh, Isaiah is clean. And and I, I, I do that, something similar to that at the end of our confession, you know, in behind the scenes, it's kind of called the declaration of forgiveness is what we call it. It's the, you know, almighty God have mercy on you, forgive you of all your sins through your Lord Jesus Christ, that thing. And it kind of comes from this passage in Isaiah 6 that it's important that there's a spiritual leader that declares that the pastor's not pardoning you, uh, the pastor's not forgiving you. The pastor's just saying, hey, listen, on behalf of God, in case you need it, you're clean. And then there's uh, a sending. Who am I? Or here am I. Send me. And there's a sending of Isaiah. And that kind of, in case you never picked up on it, it's the pattern of our worship, is that we start with worship and it kind of gets along to this, where at the very end there is not necessarily a dismissal, it's a benediction, it's a blessing, it's a sending. We get that from Isaiah. I want to circle back to the phrase Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm unclean. And for the prayer that we're looking at today, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We kind of see this vertical sin and horizontal sin. We see um, trespass with us and God vertically, and then we see trespasses horizontally with us and one another. And first of all, sin is not really a politically correct word anymore, but the, the word is not really even a religious word. It's an archery term. The Greek word is hamarta, and it just simply means to miss the mark. When an archer was shooting an arrow, and if he didn't hit the target or the bullseye, he would say, oh, I sinned, I missed the mark. So when we talk about sin, when the Bible talks about sin, it's simply saying we miss the mark for God's standard of love and goodness. Now somehow that's become politically incorrect to talk about that because there is no standard, people say. Well, there, we believe there is. We believe it's good and it's holy and it's God's image. And we often, consciously and subconsciously, miss the mark all the time. We have all missed the mark, as Paul says in Romans. And then there's forgiveness, the need for forgiveness. Now, we could get into the deep weeds of what forgiveness means and what all these ancient words mean. My favorite definition that I've ever come across on forgiveness is the simple phrase, the relaxation of a legitimate claim. That's how I see forgiveness. Forgiveness is not just getting over something. That's not necessarily forgiveness. Forgiveness is having a legitimate claim in your hand, like someone has done you wrong. And forgiveness is relaxing it. Now, it doesn't change the fact that the claim is legitimate and you're not doing away with the claim. You're just relaxing it and letting, letting go of it. So forgiveness is not overlooking something. Forgiveness is not saying, you're, okay, you keep doing that and I'm just not gonna look at it. Forgiveness is really when there's confession, when there's repentance, and, and at some point there needs to be uh, some means of relaxing that claim. So that's forgiveness. Now, we are in a real-time illustration for this, thanks to COVID-19. Now, what's crazy about this is there's this invisible virus that is freaking everybody out and it's killing people and it's very deadly. 
And it seems like it's kind of inevitable. They're saying everyone's going to get it. And there's no vaccine for it. And as far as we can tell, there's not really any medicine yet for it. There's no cure. And it brings everybody to their knees. And it causes death. And it's caused social distancing. Who was using that word two weeks ago? That's what sin is. Sin is this invisible virus that we all have that causes death. There's no vaccine for it. There's no cure for it besides the blood of Jesus. It's terminal and it hurts relationships. It causes massive social distancing. First, it sin um, brought division and space in between our relationship with God. And so there is this vertical social distancing that has happened because of this silent virus, so to speak, called sin in our lives. And also, horizontally, it causes social distancing where um, our sin and even when people refuse to own and confess and repent of their sin, it causes social distancing and breaks down relationships and causes relationships to be broken beyond reconciliation. I mean, even now, the, the Lent message is everywhere. You know, wash your hands Get clean, stay clean, don't spread the germs. I mean, it's not lost on me that this is happening in the season of Lent. And if you turn on the news, you see everyone freaking out about this unseen, invisible virus that is deadly, that there's no cure for. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. And in the same way, we would share the gospel in that vein and say there's an invisible um, a virus out there called sin. And really, you can wash your hands all you want. You can be like Pilate and try to wash your hands and it really doesn't do anything. It's silly. You can be like the Pharisees who tried to stay clean and do all these external things to stay clean. And Jesus said, you know, that you're a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, you're clean, but on the inside, none of that hand washing has done anything on the inside. We need to be washed by the blood of Jesus. He is the ultimate cure for this virus called sin. In Psalms 51, there's a great prayer that I love to pray, and I'm gonna encourage you to pray it um, in this season. Pray it today. Pray it while you wash your hands. When you start to think about, am I clean with, without germs? Am I safe from the coronavirus? Start to think of Psalms 51. Verse 10 says, create in me a clean heart. O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. I mean, talk about the, not, he's saying, I don't want to be socially distanced from you. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's amazing. Consider meditating on Psalms 51, verses 10 and 12 in light of COVID-19. And think theologically on that. The reality is, is we are made clean. Our hearts are made clean from the inside out by the blood of Jesus. That's the only thing that can wash us. That's our only hope fighting this invisible disease. Not COVID, but sin. The classic gospel text on this subject is Ephesians chapter two. And I'd like to read you kind of the entire chapter. I want you to listen to this theme of being socially distanced from God because of the power of this virus and how Christ comes and restores the relationship that has been fractured because of the virus. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, he says, 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of your of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I mean, just, in other words, that virus of sin has spread to everybody and no one could do anything about it. Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world, which is pretty awful. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a great clear text, Ephesians 2, on the power of the blood of Christ, washing us clean, repairing the social distancing that's happened between us and God. I wanna close by um, offering you two questions, um, two suggestions is one would be to regularly practice confession vertically. It can be as simple as this. You can say, like the psalmist, um, search my heart, Lord, and show me anything in my heart that doesn't please you. And then listen. And without fail, I, I promise you, God will bring things to your mind that need confessing. And then here's what you do. You just simply say, Lord, I confess and then you name it, fill it in the blank. And this is super important because sunlight's the best disinfectant. And what I found is when you drag sin out into the sunlight, it kind of robs it of its power. And so you might say, Lord, I confess fear. Lord, I confess an addiction. Lord, I confess anger. Lord, you know, whatever. But j just name it and confess it. 
and give it to him and ask for his forgiveness. The second is horizontally, is regularly practice confession, repentance, and forgiveness in our horizontal relationships. You know, maybe there's somebody that needs to ask for your forgiveness that they wronged you and you've been holding that legitimate claim and you've been holding them hostage and you've been trying to make them pay for it. Why not relax that claim and let Jesus pay that debt and forgive them and move on? Someone once said, unforgiveness is like drinking a bottle of poison, sitting down and waiting for the other person to drop dead. Really, you're the one that unforgiveness kills. And that's hard. I get it. I've been there. But it's so much better to open your hand, ask Jesus to pay for that sin, to pay for that debt, and to release, bless, and move on. Maybe uh, you need to ask somebody's forgiveness. Maybe you've treated someone awful, or maybe you've just been refusing to accept that you've done something wrong, and maybe... This is a moment where God's speaking to you to go to somebody and to say, hey, I need to seek your forgiveness on blah, blah, blah. And you don't need to throw up on them. You don't need to get into the details. You can just simply say, hey, I need to confess that this is wrong and repent and ask for your forgiveness and move on. How has sin affected your relationships vertically with God and horizontally with one, with one another? The good news is Jesus, 2,000 years ago, took care of it on the cross. He stretched out his arms of love so that anyone who would come within his saving embrace would find life and freedom. So I want to encourage you to, as we um, sing one more song, to process um, any of that stuff that God's speaking to you. We love you.